0: On this episode of Kibbe on Liberty, we talk to the co-authors of the forthcoming book, Socialism Sucks, Two Economists Drink Their Way Through the Unfree World. We're gonna talk about real socialism, fake socialism, kids that love socialism in America and what the hell that's all about. And then we're gonna drink some really crappy communist beer from North Korea. You don't wanna miss this. You have three economists and, and one of my fantasies for Kibbe on Liberty is to, is to do a podcast called Drunk Austrian Economics inspired by, by Drunk History. And, and I feel like we're sort of halfway there because I have two very accomplished free market um, Austrian economists with me, uh, Bob Lawson, Ben Powell, and I will read your resumes in a bit, but um, before we do that, Let's let's retell that story. You you flew into DFW today. This is concerning. I'm concerned about you. You flew into DFW and the, the the lady at the bar knew your drink, sort of like Norm would be shouted out on cheers. Is this true? Yeah, I mean, and there's four
1: Admirals Clubs in DFW, so but now I live Did in Did you do this at all four? <sighs> no. But well, yes, but it depends which bartender is at which because they don't all stay in the same club; they move between clubs. But I, fairness, I live in Lubbock. At every flight starts with a flight to DFW, and then I have a layover. I gotta have somewhere to go. Yeah, it is a little. I feel
0: boring. like layovers and drinking go together, like, uh, like Liberty and beer. I don't know what that means. <laughs> um, so we're here, and you guys are the the co-authors of a forthcoming book. Uh, the release day is July... 30. 30. Called Socialism Sucks, Two Economists Drink Their Way Through the Unfree World. And I, I sort of immediately resonated with that because um, Kibbe on Liberty is a, is a drinking show. Like we we will drink on this show and we we celebrate the the, the vast diversity of, of of American beer culture as, as a beautiful metaphor for what happens when entrepreneurs are free to, to, to create beautiful things. And we actually have quite a collection here. I, it'll offend those of you who prefer um, corporate lager, but but we have some beautiful beers from uh, Hill Farmstead, which according to all the crowdsourced ratings is is considered the, the best microbrewery in the country. We have a Heady Topper and two of my local favorites, Aslan from Virginia, and also The veil vale from Virginia. But we also have some some commie beers on the table, which you guys brought along, Cerveza Polar, and I don't know what that other one is, but it's from North Korea, and we're gonna subject ourselves to this. And we're gonna do a side-by-side and see who makes better beer, Americans or commies. You've already tipped your
1: hand on this, actually, of the metaphor of entrepreneurship and creativity of the variety. And even back in the corporate beer days before microbrew, the variety of American beer, even then, vastly superior to the variety that any socialist society provides in terms of beer for their people.
0: Yeah, the whole... For me, the whole uh, metaphor of beer as a symbol of freedom started, I think it was almost three years ago now, there was an article about Cerveceria Polar in Venezuela, um, and, and I, as far as I can tell, it's sort of a government-controlled company. I don't think it's government-owned, but you could correct me. It's privately-owned, Yeah, but the government,
1: so this is an important distinction. So, so Bob and I go to great lengths in the book to say that socialism is, Government or collective ownership of the means of production. Yeah, but we also have cases where the means of production are privately owned but government controlled. So, like National Socialist Party in Germany, Nazi, it was privately owned but government edict dictated much of what production was. Venezuela is far along that path to socialism, but there remains nominal private companies yeah. that face pervasive government
0: control of their production. Polar would be one of them, and you're about to tell me what happened. So the, uh, the, the shocking thing to me, I'm reading this article and the headline is uh, the one brewery in Venezuela can no longer per, uh, procure the ingredients to make beer in Venezuela. And By this time, the Maduro regime had, had created just um, empty grocery stores and moms lined up trying to find food. Um, people literally getting killed in the streets for, for, for stealing $5. Uh, things are much worse today, and I'm thinking to myself, and this is probably, um, you know, sort of dark humor, like, well, if I'm living in a socialist hell hole like Venezuela, I damn well need a cold six pack, and now that's gone, now that's gone. Could anything be worse than living through socialist hell and not having a cold beer? Uh, I'm sure there is something worse, and and, and Maduro's working really hard to show what that is. I mean, people are people are eating their pets now.
1: People in Venezuela lost twenty-four pounds last year. They didn't all find Jenny Craig, right? The country ran out of beer. The problem is they also run out of food. Now yep. this isn't Ukrainian or, or Great Leap Forward type starvation, but shortages are pervasive there, um, and not just in beer.
2: So if we let's talk about the book a little bit because we went to we went to Colombia, we flew to Colombia, and then we took another flight to a little town called Cucuta. It's on the border of Venezuela, and if you've watched any of the news reports of Venezuela and tragedy that's going on there, you've probably seen these bridges, and this is the bridges that connect the Venezuela to Colombia. And we went there. This is about a year and a half, two years ago.
1: Different than what you're seeing are the bridges right now. Yeah.
2: In the yeah bridges, well, now the, the bridges, bridges right now is close. where you've
1: seen those aid aid trucks trying to yeah. go across. Yeah. And the government setting fire to them and not letting them in. That's not what we were seeing. But. The worst thing, I've, it's probably
2: the most wor- horrific thing I've ever seen in my own eyes in my entire life uh, was thousands, I mean literally thousands of people crossing filled with bags, gross, uh, luggage on wheels, just like at an airport. Two, you'd be carrying two big bags, maybe a backpack. Some people had another one on their head and they were crossing into to the Colombian side from the Venezuelan side to buy food, um, which is strange. You know, Usually you just go to the corner market to get food. And we talked to one couple, and, and this was the one that made the most uh, sort of, you know, mark on me. It was Paulo and Maria, I think their names. And they had come from Ciud- Ciudad Bolivar, which is a city. It's like 1,200 kilometers away. It was on the other side of Venezuela, on the sort of eastern side. And they'd come all the way to the western border. Uh, three days it took them one way. Uh, so it was a six-day round trip. And we asked them, "What? well, what are, what are you buying? I said, well, we're buying sugar and rice and beans and aspirin and deodorant and shampoo. And so I'm like, they were going to the grocery store, six day round trip. And, I you know, I'm a parent, I've got a daughter and, you know, the, the, these, these, this young couple, I, I was like, how terrified would I be to live in a world where I had to say, well, bye family. I'm going to get in my car and take this dangerous ride across the country so that I can get, beans <laughs> um, and these these people were not poor people these were these were middle- class people I think Paulo worked in a hotel in his city um, they, they were working people but they were not you know peasants and what, what when, when you've got an entire country where people who, who are professionals uh, hotel workers and so forth, and they're, 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 they're driven to this desperate, and it really hit me personally. I'm like, wow, I, I, you know, I've never had anything in my own life that was even close to that level of desperation. And I was almost panicked, like I, I sort of felt panic for him.
0: Yeah. Like,
1: how would I feel? And it really does drive it home, because what Bob's pointed out, I mean, both of us have traveled to many, 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 many countries, and we've seen plenty of poverty in the world, but what you see in Venezuela is not third world poverty. It's formerly fairly well-off rich people who are not rich, but fairly well-off people who are making the trek across the border to get things. The real poor people there are the ones who are losing weight like crazy and who are having high death rates, etc. Et cetera. Uh, but it's a warning sign too, for socialist movements in places like the United States, because Venezuela used to be wealthy. Venezuela as recently as 1970, was wealthier than Spain. Now, for years it had been on the downslide where they had crony capitalists moving towards socialist systems before uh, Chavez got to power in 98 and doubled down on all the socialist craziness. But go back to 1950s, fifties,
0: sixty This was a, a wealthy country uh, that was pretty economically free. It was, it was the wealthiest in Latin America, um Say twenty years ago, uh, 40. 40, Okay. Yeah. Well, let's. I mean, you you know the data. You you are the auth, co-author of the gold standard on on comparing um, economic performance in all these countries. Give us give us a, give us an overview of what that is, and 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 what Ben just talked about the, the the radical degradation of of the Venezuelan economy's performance. Yeah, sure. So I've been involved in a project called Economic Freedom of the
2: World. It's an index of economic freedom, and it basically collects a lot of data for now we're up to 160-plus countries. Uh, It collects a lot of data on taxes and monetary policy and trade tariffs, uh, regulations, and we try to scrunch all all this information into a single number. And the number is supposed to give us an idea of how free market or how, if you want to use the word capitalist, uh, a place is. So Hong Kong is number one. Yeah. Um, and currently Venezuela's last, it's 162 out of 162. Um, but it's basically a scale of from from one end capitalism to the other end, not capitalism, uh, socialism And that's, that's what we do that's what the index is, is all about. And Ben mentioned that Venezuela was once upon a time one of the more free countries. In fact we scored it not only as the richest country in South America, it was the freest country in South, South America, the most capitalist country. And then what it did is it began moving away from economic freedom. It went from the top twenty percent or so of the scores down to the literally dead last. Yeah. And uh, the growth rate in, in Venezuela has, has been negative over the long run. I mean, so you know, Ben mentioned that that Spain is was was, was, was poorer than Venezuela in nineteen seventy. Well today Venezuela is about a third as rich as
1: Spain. Spain's grown very that, quickly. That, that's before the collapse. So, yeah, it's all worse the third. Yeah. So this is yeah. circa 19, uh, uh, 2014 or so where you can actually get data. Yeah. Now it's much worse. Yeah.
2: So I mean it's like it, I think the growth rate's been about negative 1% a year. So yeah. if you imagine if your money was in a bank account and you were losing a percent this year and then next year another percent and next year do this for 30 years. Compound a negative 1% growth rate for, for 30 years. Well, you take a, a, a country that was by no means rich. But you took a country that was was pretty prosperous for its era, and you turned it into a, a a country
0: where people are literally starving. Yeah. The so so let's let's take a step back and and talk about the the concept of the book and, and Venezuela is one of the one of the darker chapters and one that that all of us are unfortunately watching on the news every day and it's it's pretty shocking to put that in context how quickly bad economic policies actually take hold and, and we're watching that, that bridge between Venezuela and Colombia today and they are, oh is this the, this Polar. We're, we're moving to, the. this is not actually Venezuelan beer because Venezuela is having a hard time making beer because they're having a hard time making anything. This is uh, Polar produced in the U.S. Yeah, it's a Venezuelan brand produced in Florida, I think. Yeah. Presumably for all of the Venezuelan expats that have managed to escape the hellhole that is Venezuela today. So this is the beer that they ran out of in Venezuela, but the Florida producer
1: still is able to produce. And uh, my Venezuelan friends here in the United States uh, tell me that the one that's produced here tastes better than the one that's produced there when it's produced there. I'm I'm not surprised. I'm, I'm about to I'm about to find out for myself. Okay. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, were, drum, drum roll. Doing with that, Matt. I, I, drum roll. I was just. So I'm still drinking thirsty. American beer, so Well, let's hear it. How's it? How's it? How has it been?
0: A little bit like feet, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting wet feet in
1: this beer. Not, not ridiculously wet feet. Well, I just poured some. Too.
2: Let me try it. It's pretty skunky. Um, but not in a good, skunky way, you know, some beers are skunky
0: and it's actually yeah. a, a feature. This is just like... I like funky beers, but I don't like skunky yeah. beers. It's not the worst beer I've ever had, but yeah. it's not good. Yeah. Oh no, remember
1: that shit, Tusker? Tusker,
0: yeah, it's the oh, worst. the only yeah. time I ever got a hangover while drinking beer, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's disgusting. Yeah. So, so the incentives align to prevent you from drinking any more of it, but, so let's uh, let's take a step back and, and talk about the the concept of the book, because what, what you guys did, which most economists don't normally do is actually go there and talk to people and see what their perspective is. The story you tell about about Venezuela is particularly powerful to me because cause my view is Maduro has used um, food as a weapon right. a, as a way to get people who clearly would want something else. Um, but if you, if you're not loyal to the regime you don't get those food rations, and and there was some I can't think of his name. There's a there was a socialist economist imported from Spain, who Maduro pronounced to be the Jesus Christ of economics, and think think of, think about that. Just think about what what that implies that this guy is omnipowerful, omni. Uh, press in he can he, he knows everything. Listen, if he were the Jesus
1: Christ in economics, they wouldn't have run out of beer because he would have turned water into beer.
0: Well, wow. but, but, but this was a guy that said we must build a barricade between Colombia and Venezuela because it is all those capitalist interests in in Colombia and presumably the the rest of the free world. And the only reason that socialism wasn't working in Venezuela is that that people on the outside we're corrupting it with their evil price gouging, profit maximizing interests.
2: Well, you know, it, it, to a certain extent this was true though. One of the hallmarks of socialism of course is price controls. And the, the Venezuelan economy is riddled with price controls and it forces down the price of many things which is why shortages happen. This is Econ 101, I would teach it literally in the first week of a, fres- a freshman class. Um, so gasoline, for example, in Venezuela is very, very cheap. Uh, you know, 40 cents a gallon or something like that. Uh, meat and, and basic commodities would be very, very cheap. Well, so cheap that you can't find them because the producers just don't want to make them at those low prices. Uh, but also it creates an arbitrage opportunity to use a business school buzzword um, that where you could buy, if you could find gasoline or meat or in Venezuela, you could truck it over to, uh, to say Colombia or Brazil. And you could sell it high. You could buy low and sell high. Yeah. So there was a certain element of truth. One of the one of the problems of socialism is, is that if you force the price down too low, uh, people will will buy it, but then they'll they'll not necessarily use it. They'll want to sell it to somebody else because the price is arbitrarily too low. Yeah. It's it's and you know, uh, it was kind of funny. You could see people on the sides of streets on the Colombian side selling gasoline out of buckets or like little pump hand pumps because uh, you know gasoline in Colombia's normal price it's a few dollars a gallon. Yeah. So uh, the prices in socialist economies this is getting like wonky I know but the the prices are just insanely wrong. Like things and and as a result when prices go go wrong, we start doing crazy things like taking, you know, uh, gasoline in in buckets across the border so we can sell it in a different place, which is stupid, but that's
1: what what socialism does to people. We should come back to that theme when we talk about Cuba, but in terms of the evolution of the Venezuelan economy, I think this is an important point of what was happening under Chavez during the years where everybody pointed to it and said, this is democratic socialism that is successful, because there was a period, and not long ago, in fact, Bernie Sanders recently appointed uh, a new advisor who wrote the column for Salon called Hugo Chavez's Economic Miracle yep. upon the death of, uh, of Chavez in just, what, six years ago now? Not, not even six years ago. Uh, what had happened during that time period, of course, was Venezuela sits on the world's largest oil reserves. They were putting in these price controls and other government controls that were wrecking their domestic economy. But meanwhile, they were cashing in on world market prices for very high oil. Meanwhile, well, production eventually starts going down of their oil because state-owned oil uh, production is not very efficient. But they got big revenue coming in from the high prices. And what you look at happening in their domestic economy, food imports are accelerating rapidly during this time period. Which listen, I'm all in favor of international trade and we should be having actually more food imports to the United States because of stupid ag policies that make us produce too much food here. But In Venezuela's case, what it was was it was masking the domestic collapse of their economy through the high oil prices. And eventually, when prices turned down, and this is what socialists like to say now, it's like, oh, well, it's just oil prices turned down. It wrecked the economy. Listen, I live an hour and a half from the Permian Basin here in Texas. Permian Basin ain't collapsing. In fact, people sacking groceries still make decent money there. In fact, Saudi Arabia is doing all right. What was happening was these price controls that Bob's talking about over even nominally, privately owned things who lacked control of their production just destroyed the economy. And uh, once oil prices weren't there to prop it up, now, by the way, not just our prices down, but production is way down. They can't import the stuff to keep themselves well fed. And the democratic part of socialism (laughs) is gone. Now it's just merely socialism because as you were mentioning earlier, they don't just hold food over people's, you know, people would vote in the... Now, what we have right now is an opposite by right now. I'm not sure when you're going to air this. Right now, while we're speaking, is an opposition leader from the Assembly who's claiming to be interim president uh, and is recognized by the United States government and dozens and dozens of other governments. Where uh, Maduro is clinging to power, saying that the last election from Maduro was not legitimate uh which everybody knows it wasn't. You had voting places and hand food handouts right next to it. Vote for the regime, get the food. The state employees were told, you do not vote for the regime, you do not keep your job. The supervisors were told, your employees don't vote for the regime. They don't keep their job. Democratic socialism, and Hayek pointed this out long ago and *Road to serfdom. Venezuela is a living case of it. In 98, Chavez was democratically elected. He put in a new constitution afterwards that was democratically done. But once you collectivize the means of production and have a central plan, you necessarily confront economic stagnation because it cannot deliver. You were forced to either release control of the economy or crack down and force your plan harder. And when you do, those who oppose you cannot have a voice of objection or you cannot accomplish your plans even approximately and that's what's happened in Venezuela.
0: So I'm gonna play devil's advocate. I, I get trolled by the, the socialist Twitter account. It's the Socialist Party, whatever it is. They're gonna keep me up at night too, man. And every time, and, and they're gonna go after you guys, by the way, but but every time I publish a new video about Venezuela, every time I punish, publish a new video about Mao's China or the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, they're like, that's not socialism. That is not socialism. What we're talking about is the Nordic model, and this is where your book starts. Yeah. This is where your book starts. So let, let's get back to the book. And, and you guys are hanging out in a bar, and what happened? Yeah, so
2: the first chapter is, is called Not Socialism, and it's about Sweden. Yeah, and we were drinking in a bar, and, and you know, beer is expensive because it's Europe and it's Sweden, and we're like, why is this beer eight dollars? And it's well, it's because they have high taxes, and well, it's not sugar coated, their taxes are about 50% higher in Sweden than they are in the United States. But except for taxes and maybe some regulatory issues in labor markets, but except for a couple little areas, Sweden is structurally as capitalist as the United States, maybe even more so in some ways. I mean, it's private ownership of businesses and private cars, private homes, private real estate markets. You know, uh, you buy and sell at unregulated prices. They don't have price controls on on gasoline and, and, and other things. They have, uh, and, and, you know, it's a, it's a market economy that has really high taxes, and that's why the beer is so expensive. Okay, so it's not socialism, it's not, in, in the economic freedom index that I do, uh, Sweden routinely scores in the top 25% of all the countries in the world. Uh, it's, it's not Hong Kong economic freedom, it's not even US economic freedom, but it's economic freedom. Um, compared to, say, Venezuela, or compared to Congo or other places that, where the government is, infuses itself, either through direct ownership or through some regulatory control, the governments infuse themselves in every aspect of, of daily life. That is not what it's like in Stockholm. And, and it's,
0: it's never been that way in Stockholm, actually. Yeah. So I'm trying to remember which country it was, but Bernie Sanders, I think, was pointing to Norway is that right? He says Denmark and yeah, Norway Denmark and Sweden. Sweden. I can't the whole, the whole remember a bunch but, of them. Yeah, yeah, but but the uh, the prime minister, whatever country this was, Sweden is the one who fired back. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was one of these guys that said, No, 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 do not call us socialists because I don't want you chasing um, international capital investment away from me. Exactly. We are a market economy, just to be clear, yeah. and you know there are there are some interesting things that that these countries actually do better than the United States. They don't. They don't tax business as high. That's right. um, they, in some ways, they don't have nearly as much uh, uh, labor regulation. Mm-hmm. They certainly, don't have fifteen dollar an hour minimum wages. That's right. um, they do it in other ways, and and unionism is is pretty strong there. But it's you'd not. Be, you'd be surprised, like even like environmental regulations, occupational
2: licensing. A lot of a lot of the things that we deal with in the United States in terms of regula- regulatory. Burdens on, on operating businesses. They don't have those in the Nordic countries. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I think a lot of American business would find doing business on a day to day basis easier in Denmark, except on tax day. But except for taxes, they would find like day to day business, hiring and firing workers, putting your product, marketing, building a, a building. All that's e- in many ways, at least the measures that we, we track, would be easier in these places. So, you
0: know. So they, they don't want Bernie saying that. Oh goodness, no. Yeah, they're like, yeah. please stop, you're not helping. So wh- where did you guys go next? You, you, Sweden, not socialist. Yeah, so every chapter in the book is
2: uh, something, it's an adjective, socialism, so not socialism. Uh, Venezuela was starving, starving socialism. socialism, and then surviving socialism was Cuba.
1: Or subsist- subsistence Cuba, yeah, subs- subsistence uh, socialism. Uh, Cuba is an interesting one because, I mean, listen, Matt, there's really only three socialist economies left. There's plenty of places with bad property rights, without good legal systems, that aren't fully capitalist. Uh, But there's only three where they really try to centrally command the economy anymore, right? And that's Venezuela that's collapsing, North Korea that you have very little access to actually see anything, and Cuba. Cuba's kind of like the softer side of socialism, as is left in the world today. And you can bounce around there and see it for yourself pretty easily, and it's the, kind of like
0: a snapshot from the '50s, right? Well,
1: yeah. The irony of the the cars, right, is the the leftover U.S. 1950s cars. It, it's funny when, because in Cuba, officials will call it the blockade. There is no blockade of Cuba. Yeah, there's an embargo, which Bob and I both think is stupid. America should trade freely with Cuba. But there's plenty of other places in the world that cars could come from. The fact of the matter is, the Cuban government limits car imports and jacks the prices through the... Or de facto jacks the prices through the roof then. So things that are held together with popsicle sticks and bubble gum from the 1950s go for like $15,000 in a country where... Now, all income statistics are, are bullshit in, in commie countries because they're not based on market transactions, so, but... Listen, the place is poor, maybe $2,000 per person, average annual incomes, and your car's going for $15,000. And the more modern ones, the,
2: what, Bob, the early 90s- Yeah, we saw Peugeot's some early or, Peugeots and Renaults that we came from France in the 90s. And I mean, look, look, Matt, if you found a 1991 Peugeot on a used car lot here in Dallas- the guy would just give it to you for tax and title, like get it off my lot, it's free. Just take it, drive it away. It's the market value of a 30 something, 40 year old Peugeot is is zero. 30 plus thousand US dollars in Cuba for a 1991 French piece of crap. I mean, it was a piece of crap the day it was built. And you can imagine what what condition it's in now in Cuba. So the prices, uh, because of the import ban, the, the Cuban government won't let cars come in, the prices of cars have skyrocketed to the point where like, it's the most valuable asset that you can own. It's
1: The cars are more expensive than homes. It's, so every in Cuba, the whole relative price structure, yeah. you go between countries and go to a poor country, go to a richer country, there's like differences in overall price levels, but there's some semblance to the structure. Of a drink should equal how many tax or how many drinks should equal a taxi ride? How many taxi rides should equal a hotel room? All that's out the window in Cuba. The prices are just bizarro land because of its managed economy that does not reflect the world market in the least. Uh, It's a way the puzzle in Cuba because they're poor. The puzzle as you walk around as an economist. Mm -hmm. what is off here because they're just poor? And that looks like other parts of the world. But what's off because it's centrally planned? And there's things that illustrate the incentive problems. Commercial streets. Bob and I, as you might imagine, we like to walk around and have drinks. And it's hot there. So we would walk around and then we would say, you know what, we need a drink. Let's try to sit down, have a few drinks, walk around some more, take some notes so that we can write it off our taxes and eventually write this book. This whole thing's a
0: tax dodge is what you're telling me. Pretty much. No, no, not at all. No, not at all. Sorry. To be clear. <laughs> to be clear in case anyone's listening. Not at all.
1: Uh <clears throat> but <laughs> odd thing. What's missing? You get to a street corner, you're like, should I walk down that street to try to get a drink or should I walk down that street? Signs. No signs. No signs. Go to the poorest countries in the world. Every place has signs. The whatever local beer company there is gives signs for free to the other places to say that they have their beer. Except in Cuba, no one gives a shit. Because if you go in their store or not, they don't make any more or any less money. Doesn't matter. It does not matter. And you can see this side by side in the things, and this is important actually because there's no polar case of pure socialism or pure capitalism right in the world. It's a spectrum. And Cuba's on that far end of the spectrum, but they still allow versions of private property and ownership and enterprise and they have Casa Particulars where people can rent out their houses, uh, to guests to stay in. And you can fact you can Airbnb it in the United States, not directly to Cuba. It's their relatives in Miami. You do an Airbnb contract with them and then they call somebody in Cuba cause internet's not really so much a thing there. <laughs> they call somebody, they meet you at the property, they let you in. And you can also just do it on the street in Cuba. The Casa Particulars are well-maintained, updated, customer service friendly, great. The state hotels, that's collective ownership of the means of production. What pieces of crap those are. Prices are about the same, but one place reinvest their, their revenue to enhance the capital and provide a better experience because they want more customers. The other doesn't care. Same product, differences, incentives
0: of private ownership and collective ownership. If you go to, so there's, there's sort of this two-tiered system in Cuba where um, the people have access to almost nothing, but tourists and, and the political class have access to better hotels. Which ones were you we talking about here?
2: So we went to, um, we went to hotel, two, two state owned hotels that would have been possibly for tourists, but three star rated, but three star rated, but these would be pe- hotels that like anybody would have stayed at. Yeah. Um, they were not, uh, the, so the Hotel National would be the fancy, glorious old colonial hotel. It's, it actually has been well maintained by the socialist government over the years. That's where, you know, if-, if I'm sure that's where President Obama stayed, you know, when yeah. he visited and so but, forth. But, but by the way, the people- So don't we, yeah, stay there. we didn't stay there. We stayed the people at- People don't at, stay at the hotels. We yeah, stayed at either. Yeah. 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 Um, so we're sort of in the middle. Um, but again, I mean, disgusting, dilapidated, stained towels, I mean, really qu- quite, I mean the worst, the worst travel in in America you've ever heard multiplied by ten is what we experience. Well,
0: I'm totally that. confused by this because I've seen the T-shirts. Che Guevara is so freaking cool. Yeah. Like I, I, I can't comport these two, these two things together. Um, are you saying that that Cuban socialism isn't cool? No, I think it's uh, so. Give me, I'll give you a couple examples of how it's not
2: cool. One is you're in uh, outside of the tourist area where very few American tourists or European tourists would ever go. We were walking around the streets of Havana and it's actually dangerous because the buildings are collapsing. Like there's rubble everywhere. And if you ever mountain climb and every rock that's on the ground, that's saying is geologic time includes now, which means every one of those cornices off the top of a building that fell could have fallen like right. today, like right, right. now. And so, the, the, it's literally crumbling. Um, we watched uh, horrific examples of sex market opportunities, which we did not, for the record, because our wives may see this, uh, did not participate in. They
0: may see this. They um, knew what you were going to say yeah, before right, you Right. Yeah.
2: So, I mean, this, is, you know, when you're in a middle-class neighborhood, what passes for a middle-class neighborhood in Havana, and you are propositioned four or five times on every block for male or female accompaniment this is not a particularly dignified and 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 lovely experience um so uh anyone anyone who says this is
0: this is people are desperate they're really desperate they they do what Um, they need to do to survive and there's, there's no opportunity
2: the physical plants dilapidated and and then do people do people like do they look are they starving? No. no, they have some fun. Sure, uh, they drink and it, it's it's they're surviving, but it's it's. Um, I tell you again, when you have when you have that volume of of uh, again the sex market also really you know kind of hit you in the face. Um, they can be actually funny. I mean, one one guy, remember, he's like. Chica, chica, chica! I'm like, no, 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 no. He goes, chico, chico, chico. And I'm like, no. <laughs> but I had like, so they could be funny. So markets do uh, clear. But yeah. um, it, it was it was not, and it, and it wasn't, in, it wasn't just some red light district. This was the entire city. Yeah,
1: yeah. It, but let's be, uh, cube is kind of uh, like, this is functioning, yeah. uh, econ speak dorks equilibrium socialism of. It ain't starving, it's not collapsing. and it's been there for a long time. It's not growing, it's stagnating. It's the Caribbean, so it's not like you have to scratch out like against Siberia to get your living, yeah, but it's not going anywhere one of the striking things there in fact, in terms of your your beer theme here is I'm gonna pour a little bit more of the swill into my you haven't tasted this one I have try you yet, this Matt? yeah uh
0: and then we're gonna then we're gonna get really dark and and go to North Korea, yeah uh there you go. Yeah, have some of that. I'll I'll grab some more of this.
1: The it's sameness. So yeah. Venezuela ran out of beer. That's messed up. Cuba didn't run out of beer. But they've got two brands. Is it uh Cristal and Bacanero? Bacanero. Yeah. Bacanero. Right. And they both basically taste like crappy versions of Budweiser. Right. And one is like four and a half percent, and one's maybe five percent alcohol. Five and a half. It tasted
2: the same to me. One was dark and one was light, but eh,
1: I couldn't really tell the difference. <laughs> but in terms of the metaphor of alcohol being used in this stuff and beer, it doesn't deliver variety. Yeah. If you go to a well-stocked convenience store in Cuba, and we saw plenty of stores that weren't well-stocked, but well-stocked ones, what is striking? is the utter lack of variety. A convenience store that's well stocked, shelves are full, but you can identify 20 to Maybe. 30 distinct products because it's one of everything. They've got their cola, that's it. I called it Kami Cola, that's not its real name, yeah. but there's one of it. And if they got a lot of it, they got a lot. It'd be a whole like wall of cola, <laughs> one kind. Yeah. Take it or leave it, that's it. And essentially the same thing when you came to beer, there were two kinds for the country. You had it or you didn't have it. Those are things again in poor countries. It's not poverty. It's once you're centrally planning your economy, variety is no longer a
0: thing. Yeah, there, there's no choice, and I and I wonder what you know. A, a lot of the young people that would would really go wild about some of the beers that I have here, and I, I love craft beer culture and and they and they live in this 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 radically choice-driven world where anything is available to them at at the click of a button like what would it be like to to go to one of these these stores where you know you know let's hope the shelves are full but there's not that much there like i can live but it's going to suck yeah. And that's Cuba.
1: You know, this is an important point, too, Matt. If I can live, but it's going to suck. Bob and I, we wrote Socialism Sucks, and we describe our travels. And some a couple of people, when we've talked about things, was like, oh, oh I could have done this differently. Well, why don't you go back and do that? I'm like, no, because it sucks. But Bob and I were doing it from the privilege of basically, like, rich white people visiting. Right. And even a Cuban, yeah. you know, a couple weeks stint in Cuba, when you have money and can go to places that are relatively nicer, you still get lack of variety and blandness and sucking. These people live their lives with it. It's much worse
0: yeah. than visiting it. Yeah. And being able to take an airplane ride away. So I'm really depressed, but let's let's go darker because you guys went up to the border of of North Korea. And and let's just start with the... Since my glass is empty, I'm going to start yeah. on this North Korean beer. Oh, okay, um, so we we have a beer from North Korea. Tell me the story about this beer. Is it is it legal? Did did you break laws to buy this? Uh, no, we didn't break any laws to buy it. Somebody
1: broke laws to be able to sell it to us. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah we,
1: this we is an old pull tab. You right know,
2: like, there, this yeah. is such an old... I hope it works. I haven't done this in a long time. Yeah, right. Uh tab like that? that, that that's old
1: that's school. Old school. That's old school. It's actually. Guy drives a beetle. Yeah. Probably keeps him there for. About-
0: okay. Well, you go we'll first. Find you go out. first. Unfortunately, we know what the punchline is. This wow. this is probably going to be disgusting. I wasn't open. Your are oh, already so breaking.
2: So yeah. So we went to the. You want to keep talking? I'll, I'm going to drink.
1: Have a smell and get ready. I'll, I'll I'll set up the story while you set up the drink. Uh... So you probably have a big libertarian following that watches your show. I bet you a bunch of them have Googled. If you haven't, go ahead, Google it now. Not now. After you're done watching. You know, Satellite image of Korean Peninsula at night. Yeah. And you can see the south is lit up like a Christmas tree. The north is dark, except for the capital. There's a little dot there. And then you can clearly tell the Chinese border where all the lights are. The brightest spot on the, that Chinese border would be Dandong. That's the city we went to in China. That's the main export city for North Korea where all the trade happens. And I'll tell you, the the best comparison, so in terms of capitalism, socialism, free and unfree, there's nowhere where you get a better natural experiment than Korea, where you have a place with the same history, the same culture, the same language, that at the end of World War II, if anything, North Korea was richer than South Korea in terms of its natural resources, not electricity, its output, everything, everything except farming, because it's a little bit warmer in the South and less mountainous. The whole thing gets decimated by the Korean War, and then you get two different systems. The main difference between the two halves is just the economic system. And you have one that rapidly transforms into a first-world economy that incomes are about $37,000, $38,000 per capita now, and the other one where income statistics are bullshit but less than $2,000 per capita. You can see it from a satellite at night, but on the South Korean, North Korean border, you can't see it so well because of the demilitarized zone. Go up to the Chinese border in Dandong. That satellite photo ain't BS. We check into our hotel room at, I don't know, 10 at night. Look out the window. Can't see anything across the road. You can see the three little arches of the bridge that are lit up and nothing on the other side. You wake up in the morning, there's a city over there
0: but it's black at night it's black at night yeah.
2: the chinese side is i mean it's not shanghai or beijing's skyline but the dandong skyline is an impressive modern city of skyscrapers with you know modern advertising logos and and a lot of light on the chinese side and it the river and then across the other side of the river we we, we thought we were actually worried that when we woke up in the morning, oh my God, what if there's nothing here? I mean, the guidebook and some of our research said that there's a city over there, but we were concerned because it was literal darkness. And it, was it was a full it was moon the, that it night. the world. It was a full moon that night. Which yeah. There was nothing to
1: see. And it's a major city. It's not like it. It is the main export city for
0: North Korean economy. It's probably the prosperous one, right? Yeah. So let's take a commercial break here. I am talking to the authors uh, Ben Powell and Bob Lawson of the forthcoming book, Socialism Sucks, Two Economists Drink Their Way Through the Unfree World. We are drinking our way through this podcast, but but you guys would surely encourage people to sort of pre-order this book. Um, if if you wanna be one of the cool kids, you gotta have this book. Is that a fair statement? Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah. yes, Matt, it's, it's, it's the book. It's categorical, by the book. If you um, want to be one of the uncool kids, also buy the yeah, book. Yeah, like if you want to be uncool, buy the book too. Yeah. Because one of those two things will work for you. So I'm I'm drinking the fake rea Polar and it's it's bland is more than anything else. Like this this is the lowest common denominator of, of beer that you would you would accept as drinkable in the US. But we have opened Drumroll, a North Korean beer. How's that going over there?
2: It's it's rough. Yeah. I I actually I have no word <laughs> for the smell. It's I've never Ass. actually smelled that. It's Ass? vaguely no, it's vaguely you in- smelled that. <laughs> <laughs> vaguely uh industrial. Actually, that's kind of maybe yeah. industrial solvent would be the nearest
0: So you'd use this to clean your tires, maybe. Yeah.
2: Um I mean the color, you know, it's a little it's okay, but
0: it's 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 not good. Can we get a spit bucket on set here just I'm kidding. Um, I hope it doesn't kill me. Actually, I'm not kidding. <laughs> um, I can't wait for you, you know, to try some. So it just tastes like shit, is what you're saying. It, it actually the taste isn't so
2: bad, but the smell is extremely yeah. off-putting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, and... I'd love to put that on tap at some craft beer bar and 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 sort of rebrand it as as we've rebranded PBR. Right. Well, you know the country. fun thing that I would have liked to see is when Bob and
1: I we attended this the socialism 2018 gathering. And uh, on tap there, they had, uh, I think, uh, Revolution IPA, maybe. uh, uh, Either way, it was a Revolution Brewery from Illinois. It's the largest independently owned brewery in Illinois. And they have lots of commie logos and symbolism on their their beers, including their Raised Fist Green uh, tap with a red star on it. Except that privately owned brewery that celebrates commie stuff produces about 20 regular beers and God knows how many specialty beers after that. And they range from like weak beer of 2.5% to barley wines in the 16, 17. They produce a variety of beer that's greater than all of the socialist countries in the world combined yeah. in one company that has a profit incentive to do so. And now the people who ran the, the Hyatt Hotel understood their audience and they put that on tap and they made a pretty penny off it. I would have loved to see them pour... Polar yeah. and this other swill side by side with it. The beer of the people. Yeah.
0: Ask them for their their comments on it. Yeah, you should you should have trolled and uh and and we'll go back to the to the American socialist thing. Um, because I, I do want to get I wanna to get to something that's not nearly as depressing as, as North Korea, but uh um I think that that the way that beer tastes is probably the best news coming out of North Korea. And you guys you guys didn't cross the border because you're like, I don't wanna die.
1: Yeah, so actually both of us promised our wives when we were, started working on this book, uh, one of the promises was that we wouldn't get imprisoned or killed. Yeah. Jailed is okay, because that's temporary, but imprisoned or killed. And North Korea, uh, technically actually, the US government asked you now to get a special permit from them to go. There was a window when we were writing where we could've, Appealed to North Korea for a permit without having to get permission from the U.S. government, but let's be honest, man. I run a free market institute. This guy runs the O'Neill Center for Global Markets and Freedom. North Korea is not going to have us. You would be detained. High on the list of people to let in, and if they let us in, uh, yeah, we're not anonymous. They're good at that state security there.
0: You know, I don't see anyone unlike. Cuba and Venezuela where there's still apologists or even people that celebrate the systems in this country. I don't see anybody sort of apologizing for Kim Jong-un and, and the tradition in North Korea. Or maybe you do, well, like. We have, well, not apologizing, disowning. Yeah. yeah. So here's the the
1: and it's the thing that you brought up before with the, the, the socialist, listen, it's not a, a, a A huge surprise to me that you don't want to own Mao's China, Stalin's Soviet Union, current Venezuela, or North Korea. So, but at the Socialist Conference, we had people do a session on imperialism on the Korean Peninsula. Yeah, they talked about U.S., Chinese, Japanese, Russian imperialism, and they never mentioned the two different economic systems. Right. And instead, they call it state capitalism, North Korea and that they're opposed to state capitalism in North Korea. We're fully on board with that there's this spectrum between capitalism and socialism, and that pure capitalism, as Bob and I or you would like it, doesn't exist in the world. But I'm perfectly happy to own the countries that are closer on the spectrum to that and what their performance are. What the socialists are not happy to own is those that are closest to not having private property and the major means of production are the ones that all end up being authoritarian hells with miserable living standards. They won't own they just say, unless it's my particular unicorn that's never existed, it doesn't count.
0: Yeah, that's that's not us and they and they're they're quite insistent about it. And and the same trolls that probably harass you guys harass me. That's not state capitalism. That's oligarchy. That's or that's not socialism. That's state capitalism. That's oligarchy. Whatever whatever that is they don't want responsibility for that, but, but I, I feel like they should probably go back and, and read some Marx and Engels and, and learn about the arc of history, the determinist arc from feudalism to capitalism to late-stage capitalism to socialism to communism. And they will sort of fantasize about the unicorn of communism. And it, it sort of sounds kind of cool. There's no scarcity, there's no prices, there's no money, you don't have to work. There's no state. There's no state, there's no government. Yeah. And I'm, but I'm cool with sp- at least one of these things. Well, I mean I mean those things would, would be um sort of neat to experience if you could get there, but but Marx was quite explicit, like state um state cap uh state socialism. State socialism. Uh that's a violent transition. And and that's exactly what uh Maduro is trying to do. That's what at least his Jesus Christ of economics. he's He's keenly aware that you have to jolt the system out of late stage capitalism, and a lot of people are going to die in that process. and And that was certainly true with Mao's uh, great uh, Great Leap forward. Yep. And it was explicitly true with with Pol Pot when he when he took all of his Marxist teachings from Paris and brought them back to Cambodia. Um, violence is part of the process from transitioning from socialism to communism, and and they're not at all clear about what the mechanism is that that sort of suddenly happens where things are magical. Um, but what happens in practice is like you get you get violent dictators that are just killing a lot of people. And, and and the world's
1: two closest movements to pure socialism on that spectrum, probably, Bob. I don't know if you disagree. It's not in the index, but in the reading of history, right, would be war communism in the early years of the Soviet Union under Lenin, by the way. A lot of these people disavow, a lot of current current socialists will disavow Stalin, but still like to hold Lenin up. Yeah, Lenin under war socialism did almost all of the exact same evil things Stalin did in the name of the transition, but the collapse was so massive, he started new economic policy, which is a reintroduction of market, uh, weak versions of markets into what was supposed to be the socialist economy. The other example would be the Great Leap Forward under Mao, where you have true collectivization of the means of production to the extent that they could, and the massive collapse and cost of lives of that, and then again, retrenchment afterwards, relatively mild retrenchment
0: there, but retrenchment all the same, then you get cultural revolution until you get real reform starting in 78. And in, in both of those experiments, millions and millions and millions of workers not not the elites, but the workers. They just they died. They starved to death or they were they were assassinated for not, not towing the party line.
2: So there's two kinds of, of ways in which the current socialists are trying to get around it. One is they're just forgetting their own history. I mean there were apologists in the in the Western socialist movement for the Soviet Union under Stalin, Walter Durante, the New York Times columnist. There yeah. were apologists for Venezuela just a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, who were saying, "Oh, this this Chavez was a hero"? Uh, you me, know? Carter, and and so so in one sense, but as soon as it goes bad, as it inevitably does, they. Oh no, that, I'm sorry, no, we didn't mean that, right? So there's that's one one sense. The other sense is, is there are these socialists who say, "Well, we want social what they call socialism from below," and as near as I can tell, having trying to fi- talking about what do you mean by socialism? Because to me, if you read Marx, if you read Engels. There was no socialism from below. It was socialism from above. It was going to be, you know, Top capitalism, yeah. uh, socialism, state socialism, and and then maybe yeah, war. war this,
0: communism was not yeah. the power to the people. So kind of th- there is there are socialists today
2: who are who are saying, well, no. The reason we're not in favor. The reason Venezuela isn't socialism is because that's socialism from above. We're in favor of socialism from below, and I think it means communes. I think it just means like Israeli kibbutz and things yeah. like that, and. I gotta be honest, I got no problem. If you, Matt, if you and your crazy friends wanna go set, a, set up a commune in the woods of West Virginia, uh, go, you know, there, there's no, there's no re, no, nothing I'm gonna do or anyone in the, in the, is gonna do to stop you. Um, but that's not what socialism has ever meant. And it isn't what like socialists meant just a few years ago. Yeah. When things are going well in, in, in Venezuela, oh, this is socialism. And then as soon as it isn't, bam.
1: No, that's not what we meant. Is a, there's a, See what the 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 irony the the oddity of all of this right is the socialism from below and I completely agree with you that this if if you want to go have a hippie commune go ahead but don't let's not pretend your hippie commune is going to produce iPhones right you need advanced material production with a division of labor across many many minds to produce the goods that all of you take for granted every day what the socialism from below people don't get is that you have to coordinate economic production, and that in the market economy, this is prices, profit, and loss that drive this. When you get rid of that, and you have communal ownership of various forms, you gotta have a central plan. Instead, they say, oh, the workers will just determine what they want to produce. Well, what if the workers in one firm, let's say the tire firm, want to make 18-inch tires? Oh my God,
0: (laughs) industrial (laughs) solvent? Kim Kim Young unlogger is not <laughs> something that I'll return to. I was going to warn you not to pour so much, but uh, right, um, I got to get in on this too. It, you got to pour at least that much because you got to man up. It ah, is and and by the way, we may all be dead tomorrow, but in the meantime, we 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 committed to this experiment. All right, I I'm game for it. But hey, listen, the workers from the socialism
1: from below thing what they don't understand, or what it seems to me that the young people who are into this version of it don't understand is that you still got to coordinate production. Right. If the workers in one firm want to make one product, they still got to coordinate with all their other suppliers. Somehow they got to all agree. You don't agree across a big society with lots of people. Yeah. We Use prices to make people agree. If you don't use prices, you got to use commands. That means centralized authority. And it's no accident that every socialized economy ends up being a totalitarian hell. That's what's missing in the, they get to say that none of these totalitarian hells are what they mean, but they don't
0: understand the logic of why what they mean ends up being that. Let's let's give, uh, uh, before we move on to American socialism in, oh. in the here and now, isn't that like? I told you it's the smell. The taste is bad, but the smell is deadly. Yeah, there, there's no redeeming qualities in this beer. Like I I don't think, if I was in North Korea. I suppose I would drink this. I think you'd have to, but because my my preferences would be completely warped. But this is disgusting. If you're listening to this, particularly young people, I'll, I'll look into the screen. Do not drink North Korean lager. It is not good. I'll get it down. But let's uh let let's go Austrian economics geek, because I always um. The way that I talk about government and particularly socialist policies, it, it comes down to two simple concepts. One is sort of the Austrian critique of socialism is that nobody knows enough to redesign things from the top down. The other is sort of a public choice argument um, that more, might more accurately be called the Lord Acton argument that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And maybe that's the, the transition from Lenin to Stalin that's probably being too fair to Lenin, right? Like Lenin was a brutal murderer as well because the only way to do this from the top down. But like what would, what would Mises do? What would Ludwig von Mises say to wannabe socialists at this, at this conference you guys were at? Uh, why isn't this gonna work? So actually I think the Mises
1: critique to him would be something closer to the lines of what I was just saying is that you need a way to reconcile the production plans across society And if you abolish the private property and those means of production, you're not going to generate prices. You need some other way to do it. What other way do you have? And his answer is going to be, you don't have another way. Now, that's an even stronger answer than when I said the other way is command and control. Because command and control is another way. It's just not going to be efficient, is what Mises would say. And then the question is, how inefficient, how much production do you lose from that in a world of pure socialism it's going to be astronomical. But Mises argument ultimately is a theoretical one, not an empirical one about magnitudes. And when we look at real world socialism of the countries we visited, the historical ones that we've talked about, their failures, there's plenty of, and you see this in this, the, the Cuban system now, of the. there's plenty of informational failures of prices being wrong, but it lives in a world of capitalist economies where there's other prices that the planners can use to approximate scarcities. It's not right, but it's a ballpark. Yeah. The incentives for what you called the Acton problem are massive, both in terms of the power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely, but also new socialist man didn't show up for work. There's a reason Bob and I talked about it in Cuba where there's lots of people who want to be musicians, and everyone's pipes are clogged. When you pay plumbers and musicians about the same, being a musician's kind of fun. Doing someone's shitty pipes is not. Yeah. That's an incentive problem. Yeah. And real-world socialist systems suffer immensely from that. Mises was making a higher-order ar- higher argument, saying even if we say everybody will work for the collective good, and the tyrants won't be tyrants, you still can't do it well.
0: But Hayek, you know, they, they, they went from pure socialism and sort of acknowledged Mises and and said, well, let's let's use markets and and sort of manage them in a in a very progressive top-down sort of elitist way. Um, Hayek was banging his head against the wall. He's debating Keynes. He's debating um, uh, neo-socialists. I don't know what we called them back then. Market socialists, I think, is what they called themselves. And he's and he and that's when he gets into trying to explain this this thing that we call the spontaneous order. There is this process by which free people uh, share information and they have this personal knowledge and and through their their choices and interactions and the price system, uh, we learn things. My professor Don LaVoy, did you guys know Don? I don't remember. I did, yeah. Uh, Don talked about a greater social intelligence that was created by markets and and I, I think this, this if we could if we could sort of translate uh, Frederick Hayek and, and Don Lavoie to, to these young democratic socialists, we we might get somewhere because because the, the beauty of understanding how it is that that people spontaneously coordinate, solve problems, create wealth, help each other, uh, create civil institutions like communities. Um, they might be. They may that that may be where they're trying to get at, when they talk about bottom-up socialism, which is a, I think is a contradiction in terms. But but they're definitely wanting to get at something like that. But, but but you know Ben is is really right.
2: I mean the problem was without market prices, I don't know how that bottom-up so- socialism can work. I mean tonight I might go home and um, maybe I want to eat a salad, which requires I, someone make lettuce. Now, in a market economy, there's a pretty good system for, for figuring this system out. I, want, I go to the store with money in my hand and say, where's the lettuce? And the guy goes, oh, there's people, there are people out there who will pay money for lettuce. That sends a signal to people on the other side of the country, or sometimes the other side of the world, hey, let's grow some lettuce. The flip side of that is, what if there's a flood in the lettuce fields? <laughs> And the lettuce gets flooded and destroyed by the I'm by the by the rain. I, I yeah, will not gonna finish that. In the can. Beer. I, I'm going to do it down.
0: Thing. Open a can
2: and 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 Our we need experiment in socialism so, has failed. Like, we need a system where people who want to buy lettuce tonight tell the people who grow lettuce to grow lettuce. Right. And we need a system that if something goes wrong with lettuce growing, like a flood, that tells the people, hey, guess what? There's no there's no lettuce to eat tonight. And guess what? Prices do that magically and automatically. And this is the I think point about this sort of collective intelligence. We all get, I actually don't know what happened in California that caused the lettuce crop to, d- to be destroyed by a flood or whatever. All I know and all I need to know is that the price went up. Yeah. And that sends me a signal to buy less lettuce. Um, so the point is these prices are just constantly nudging us you know, to, to buy more, produce more, buy less, produce less. And it's this, this sort of cosmic dance where yep. millions of consumers or billions of consumers, and millions of producers, are trying to coordinate the things we want to eat and drink and and buy and have with the production decisions of the producer, it, it, you know, can you imagine if you were the czar trying to do all this, like in some, like you're the Wizard of Oz, you know, you're gonna pull lever, it, you would, you you would, dis, it would be, I can't run my own my own household half the time, can you imagine trying to run a whole house, a whole economy? Without, without so the system gets on almost on autopilot or right. spontaneous order if you want to use another by because of this. Of this. this is a very subtle but it's powerful it, yeah. and it actually works. It's why we get beer every dinner every
1: day at 711. This is uh, market economy or capitalism from the bottom up right We can do from the bottom up. The collective intelligence is something that empowers each of us to use all of the knowledge in our own brains. And then coordinate that knowledge with everybody else in society, because I'm speaking into a microphone that I have no idea how to make, how it communicates into this thing, and there's a camera, and the, or I don't even know how to make this North Korean swill. But what we need is to empower each individual from the bottom up to use their knowledge, but to make them take account of the knowledge everybody else has. Yeah. And prices are what do that when you get rid of private ownership, you get rid of the prices and you have to substitute something else and that's the collective authority and that does not use the collective intelligence. It uses the intelligence of the Politburo and the planners and pushes it down on everybody else
0: and generates this swill instead of the stuff that you're drinking. And it, this is like, the, the way you guys explain that is is why I'm optimistic if, if that we might be able to connect. With young people that are entranced by Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, the young people that go to the Socialists of America conference, which is the last chapter in your book, because I feel like I feel like what they're they're grappling for is is something that democratizes choice and knowledge and creates a greater social intelligence. That's what they're trying to describe. They don't they don't necessarily have the 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 economics to sort of put those pieces together. And rhetorically, um, that doesn't sound like capitalism. It sounds like some of the stuff that that AOC actually says. She she talks about bottom-up and she talks about uh, dignity and people people working together. To me, dignity is the fact that, that you know something that your neighbor doesn't know, and you have an opportunity to sort of exploit that and express that. And and be part of something that's bigger than yourself, uh, and so let's let's take that idea and let's go to the socialist conference that you guys were at. Um, you you wore a Cincinnati Reds hat. That's that's funny. Not me. <laughs> I did. You would never. You I'm, would I'm never a put Bostonian hat. Yeah. I thought that was funny. I'm from Cincinnati. I thought wear Cincinnati Reds hat. I mean, you guys wore funny red. red there. Right? Why wouldn't you? Sure. So you you went to Chicago. To hang out with American socialists after seeing uh, a lot of devastation and, and maybe some phony socialism in other countries, and you're wondering why the hell are kids turned on by socialism here in this country?
2: We ran into some hard socialists. I mean, uh, I mean people that actually knew about Lenin and war communism, and
0: so not oddly... jo- not John Lennon.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, Vlad- Vladimir, yeah, Vladimir Lenin, Lenin. And, and and oddly, we're still thought it was a good idea. So, and and that's, for, forgive me, that's some pure evil right there. Yeah. If you can actually know the history of Vladimir Lenin and war communism, right. or Mao's Greatly it and still think it's a, just got to try a little bit harder, that, that's some pure evil. And we'll but, break some eggs. But I didn't find much of that. I yeah. found two thirds or more of the people who were just uh, people that actually I I I personally even had some affinity for people who look at the world that we live in uh either in the United States or abroad and and they saw injustice of various kinds they saw um police uh brutality in minority communities they saw immigrants being treated poorly um they saw um they they cared about uh, uh women's rights in, in various ways and i have actually as a person i am kind of a libertarian i i like yeah i'm i'm i i have some agreement with you but what they lacked, and I think this is where the social science of economics comes in, what they lacked was any sense of how to achieve the goals that they had. And um, rather than uh, pursuing what I think is the, the best way to achieve some of these social justice goals, which is through um, authentic capitalism, um, they were for what they called socialism, but it usually just meant, uh, you know, something like uh, Alexandria. Ocasio-Cortez, Orte- I always get it wrong, I, I, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Yeah, I'm gonna say AOC. Yeah, um, AOC is easier. The burn, AOC, it's easier with these shorthands. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it's all, oh, it's Medicaid, Medicare for for all, or which is kind of socialism, but it's, it's not exactly like we're nationalizing ho- hospitals. Yeah. Um, so they've, they've latched on to the label socialism, um, and they think it's the antidote. Now, I'm gonna be a little bit more pessimistic than you though, Matt. Um, I saw that some of the organizers of the Socialism Conference, I think were using these, uh, these young people who had authentic concerns about the world we live in, and they were kind of, it's almost like a gateway drug. Like, hey, let's, right. let's get them in here, and hey, guess what? We care about abortion too, or we care about the environment too, we care about immigrant rights too. Guess what, socialists care about these things. Come be a socialist. And it's a little bit of a bait and switch. Oh, by the way, you know what? Know what socialism also means? It also means taking over the means of production, uh, which we know from history will will kill people. Um, so I was a little bit worried about a sort of bait and switch element to the to the socialism conference. Uh, that was mostly the leadership was was using the conference as a way to recruit people in and then switch them into hard socialism. But the participants themselves, um, I. I came away. I wouldn't say I was like these ki- these kids are great, but I I, uh, I came away fairly sympathetic. Yeah. Um, to them.
0: And that, and I and I wouldn't be sort of Pollyannish about it. I, I don't think everything's just going to work out. But I, but I think there's there's a generation, the generation that's going to decide for America what direction we we go in. Um, they're up for grabs because they're 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 flirting with socialism. And they're trying to figure things out, and they're looking at the two-party duopoly and saying, "I, I don't, I don't think I fit in any of this." Um, but um, the the socialists—I mean, the phrase "community organizer" doesn't come from the right; it comes from the left. Yeah. And it's it is a gateway drug, and as much as anything else, it's a sense of community, it's a sense of romance, it's an emotional appeal to to going back to the the thing that that Don LaVoy said, um, that we're better together than we are alone. And sometimes libertarians sort of blow that narrative, like, because we focus so much on individualism. I see you've abandoned the yeah, North Korean sh- beer as well. That's swell. Um, I mean. By the way, market's clear. You can see that right here. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of a burden on on our side to, to, to create that alternative narrative That's that's Beautiful and sexy and and part of a something you want to be part of, and and all those Ron Paul kids and all the 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 young people that are attracted to liberty ideas. I just spoke in uh, Tbilisi. I think your final chapter before you go back to America is Tbilisi. They know what socialism is. Yeah. They have family members who died under some sort of, sort of mutated form of Soviet socialism. Um, so they have, they, have, they have that fire of liberty in their hearts and that, that to me is encouraging.
1: And it's a dramatic success story. Yeah. Uh, in a country that made little to no reforms in the first 13 years since the fall of the Soviet Republic, yeah. after the Ro- Rose Revolution, uh, does some of the most radical reforms that yeah. anybody in the Soviet bloc and the transformation's been amazing, and Bob's seen it firsthand more than. Yeah, I, I
2: started going to Georgia in 2005, and they had a little mini revolution in 2004. So, I um, I got to watch first, and I've been there more or less every year since, sometimes twice a year. Uh, so I've kind of watched Georgia reform towards markets, and it's been really spectacular. It's still a pretty poor place, but their incomes have gone up from, I don't know, again. Income estimates in these countries just don't mean anything. But three thousand dollars to maybe eight or ten thousand dollars today. Um, but uh, w- the the title of our chapter for for uh, for Georgia is 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 not not socialism. It's it's capitalism. New capitalism. It's new capitalism because it's real capitalism. Yeah. Um, and it's it's been gratifying to see the the Georgians uh, really take you know take take a hold of their destiny and break from the their Soviet past. You Not heard all the fi- former Soviets did mean, that.
1: finance minister tell you, we're going to become more economically free <laughs> than the United States. On my
2: very first visit, in a room with no electricity uh, and no heat in the February, it was freezing, this this extreme, uh, Kaha Bendukidzo was his name, was really, I mean, must have been. I went, Kaha. Yeah. yeah. To, um, drink to Kaha, he died. Uh, this huge, bul- hulking man. I'll drink to Kaha. He told me in in this, with no electricity, there was one generator running one light bulb. This is how, with no heat. He says, we are going to be freer than Hong Kong. I'm like, you're an idiot. (laughs) Like there is zero, I'm like, look at this place. Like you could, like there's the potholes in the streets. There's no, this place is going exactly nowhere. In five years you go back, and I'm not gonna say Tbilisi's Paris, but you've been there recently. It's." It's a pretty beautiful cool city. little town, with a lot of life going on. A lot of uh, beautiful city, great arts wine. and music, and wine, and, and a lot of culture. And in terms of your index and, now, and in, in terms of the index, they are sixth on the Economic Freedom of the World Index. Wow, uh, higher than the United States. So there you go. Um, and that happened in the span of ten years.
0: Yeah. So that that should be a call to action for Americans listening to this because we're we're not necessarily doing so well. Um, but we've been talking for over an hour and drinking a lot of beer. And I'll be honest, I have to pee. So I, I appreciate you guys doing this. And I'm going to do one more shameless plug. I am talking to the co authors of the forthcoming New York Times bestseller. You, you can own that. Socialism Sucks Two Economists Drink Their Way Through the Unfree World by Robert Lawson and Benjamin Powell. Comes out in July. Pre-order it now so that you have the very first copy. Thank you guys for doing this and, and, and don't ever make me drink North Korean beer ever again. <laughs> All right, deal. Cheers. <laughs> Thank you, buddy. Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Make sure to subscribe and rate our podcast so we can reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.